Right, so we are continuing through our series in the Gospel of Mark, and um, we're in the middle of chapter 14, so if you're a guest with us this morning or you're, um, you've been out of town or something for a few weeks, we are in Mark 14, and we're going to look at verses 12 to 16 this morning. So go ahead and turn there. We're going to read it in a few minutes, um, but I want to give you a little bit of background that will be helpful before we actually read Mark 14, 12 to 26. Um, so it's on page 850 if you're using the Pew Bible, um, if you're using that copy. So what's going on here is it's the Last Supper. Probably most people that you ask, even on the street, even these days, would know what the Last Supper refers to. Maybe they've seen the famous painting by Leonardo da Vinci. Can you picture that at least roughly in your head? Yes? No? Anybody? This is like audience participation. Make every, I'm going to stand up and do some jumping jacks, make sure. Okay. Um, so that was painted 500 years ago, but it is still um, in existence despite uh, wars and other things in Italy, in Milan. Fewer people would know that this Last Supper in Mark 14, um, that he shared with his disciples was actually a Passover meal. Okay, many of you in this room may know that, um, but there may be some things about the Passover that you don't know that it would be helpful to review. And, and this is not just kind of like background just because it's obligatory and you got to just do the background thing. It's actually purposeful toward understanding what Jesus is doing in Mark 14. So I'd encourage you to, to track with me here as we go through some of this background. So the Passover meal was a meal that God commanded his people, the Jews, the Israelites, to keep each year as a memorial festival to his deliverance of them out of Egypt, right? At the Exodus. So they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. God raised up Moses to be the mediator and the deliverer that would lead his people out of slavery into the wilderness and then ultimately to the promised land. Even though Moses, because of his disobedience, was not able to go into the promised land, right? So could you tell the story? Like kids, are there any kids left in here? Do they all go to um, children's church? Like could you tell the story? You know, Joseph died. Even though he had saved Egypt from famine, you know, his memory faded. The new Pharaoh came in and didn't know Joseph, and he enslaved the Israelites. And rather than honoring the Israelites, they grew to such a number that they became a threat to Pharaoh. He feared an uprising, right? So as this new Pharaoh viewed that situation, he says, we need to enslave them lest they rise up against us. And so then he tries to kill all the male babies, and which is why Moses was hidden, right? And then she was, uh, his mom put him in this little basket and put him in the Nile River, and he gets picked up by Pharaoh's daughter and raised in Pharaoh's house. And then one day, as he's grown up, he sees an Egyptian beating one of his people. And he looks this way and that, and he kills that Egyptian, buries him in the sand. And then he realizes, uh-oh, word got out, and so he flees. What he did became known. So he ends up meeting with God at the burning bush, right? The great I am passage um, where God says, I am who I am because God commissions Moses to go back to Egypt and lead his people out of Egypt. So Pharaoh is stubborn. He's 
He hardens his heart. Moses was given power by God to call forth all these signs and wonders, plagues against Egypt. There were nine of them. Each time Pharaoh refused to let God's people go. You can read all about this in the early chapters of Exodus. And then the last plague was what? Death of the firstborn, right? And actually, this was going to apply to everybody, even the Israelites in Goshen. But Yahweh told Moses and Aaron how his people, how the Israelites, could escape this judgment and redeem the lives of their firstborn, right? So let's look at Exodus 12. You can follow along here, I think. We've got the Exodus 12 passage on the screen, beginning in verse 1. So Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. This is going to be a new beginning. This is so like earth-shaking, life-changing for you that this is going to be the beginning of life for you. Like we might as well just start the calendar over. This is how significant this deliverance is going to be. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. Um, You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, because you're going to be getting out. And you shall eat it in haste. It is Yahweh's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's why it's called the Passover. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to Yahweh throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. So Jesus and his disciples were faithful Jews, and they were going to celebrate the Passover. All of them would have done this every year of their lives. Each year, here's what it would have looked like, roughly, to walk through this custom of the Feast of Passover. Head of the family would preside over the meal, and he would lead the family through the liturgy, explaining the meaning of the meal, right? So it was customary, actually, to recite through the Hallel Psalm, Psalm 113 to 118. You could actually read those later. It's interesting to think about what's going on with those psalms in mind because there's some connections with what Jesus is doing but we won't go into that this morning 
So the celebration would begin with a blessing. <clears throat> then the family would drink of the first cup of wine. Do you know there were multiple cups? Four of them, actually. Well, actually, five in some cases, but four main ones. So they would drink of the first cup of wine. Then the food would be brought in. Unleavened bread, bitter herbs, roast lamb. I think also some stewed fruit, but, you know, we don't need to get too bogged down in the details. Um, so the son was then supposed to ask, why this night? Why is this night different than other nights? And then the father would respond by rehearsing the story of God's redemption of Israel from Egypt. And then everyone would praise God for his deliverance. And also there was an acknowledgement of future redemption, saying something like this. So may the Lord our God and the God of our fathers cause us to enjoy the feasts that come in peace, glad of heart at the upbuilding of your city and rejoicing in your service, and we shall thank you with a new song for our redemption. Because even after the um, Exodus deliverance, there were times when the Israelites were under the thumb of another power, like at this time, in Jesus' day, under the thumb of Rome. And they were looking for liberation from that, right? So then they would sing the first part of the Hallel, Psalms 113 to 15, and then they would drink the second cup of wine, and then the head of the house would take bread and pronounce a blessing over it. Something like this, blessed be the Lord our God, sovereign of the world, who has caused bread to come forth of the earth. And then he would break the bread in pieces and hand it to those who were at the table, who ate it with the bitter herbs, reminding them of the bitterness of slavery and the stewed fruit. And then it was at this point that the real meal, the roasted lamb, the protein, um, would begin. Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Anyway, so that's where the the uh, roasted lamb would come in. So after the meal was complete, the head of the family blessed the third cup with a prayer of thanksgiving. Okay, it sounded something like this. May the all-merciful one make us worthy of the days of the Messiah and of the life of the world to come. He brings the salvation of his king. He shows covenant faithfulness to his anointed, to David and to his seed forever. He makes peace in his heavenly places. May he secure peace for us and for all Israel. And then everyone would say, amen. Yes, may it be so. And then the second part of the Hallel was sung, Psalms 116 to 18. And the drinking of the fourth cup concluded the Passover. There also was um, a tradition of pouring a fifth cup uh, that was not drunk. It was the cup of Elijah because they knew that Elijah preceded the arrival of the Messiah. So leaving it undrunk was in anticipation of that coming deliverance. So with that background, like that would have been normal for them to know those things. We might not if we don't have Jewish background or if we haven't been to one of those seders or something like that, okay? So with that background, let's read through our passage this morning and then see what this meal means. All right, so Mark 14, beginning in verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? 
And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the 12. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, probably Psalm 118 or maybe 16 to 18, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So this passage breaks down into three sections really clearly, and you can just kind of scan down through this and see it. The preparation for the Passover meal, verses 12 to 16, Jesus sends to the disciples and, you know, make these preparations. And is it that Jesus set it up ahead of time and there was some, you know, code word stuff set up because he was a wanted man and he's heading into Jerusalem. And so like normally it was the women who would carry the jar of water. And this is a man carrying the jar of water. So they know to go talk to him. And then, you know, they're going to set up the meal because for the whole disciples, whole group of disciples to come in, it would draw too much attention. And they were going to, is that possible? Yep. Is it also possible that it's just completely supernatural and, you know, Jesus just says, this is how it's going to be. And that's how it was. And that's possible too. We don't know. Okay, that's the preparation. The prediction of betrayal, verses 17 to 21. One of you is going to betray me. And then they participate in this new covenant meal, verses 22 to 26. But we're actually not going to work through the passage that way. Okay, instead we're going to focus more on the meaning of this meal. Okay, under three points, the first point is going to be the longest by far. And then all of this will be to prepare us to participate in the Lord's Supper this morning. All right, so point number one, behold, I am doing a new thing. <clears throat> Anybody know where that comes from? It's from Isaiah 43, 19. Okay, when God tells his people of his coming redemptive activity, like he's going to rescue them from Babylon and bring them back to Jerusalem. Long before it takes place, he tells them ahead of time. Well, in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, God did the ultimate new thing, the ultimate redemptive deliverance. So if he's doing a new thing, perhaps it shouldn't surprise us that there are some surprises at this meal. 
Did you notice any of them? There are several surprises at this meal. So first off, this, the Passover meal would normally be a celebratory feast, right? It's a festival, remembering, rehearsing, celebrating God's past deliverance. So that celebratory atmosphere was broken like a record scratch. You know, I can't make that noise. You know what I'm talking about. With the announcement of betrayal. You see the mood shift in verses 18 and 19? As they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful. They weren't sorrowful before that because they're celebrating the Passover. This is like, this is like Christmas, you know? I mean, this is such a central part of who they are and how God has dealt with them. So they began to be sorrowful and they asked one after the other, is it I? So that's the first surprise. Second surprise, and one of the reasons I explained all that typical Passover meal stuff is that Jesus departs from the script. See, if we didn't know the script, then we're not aware of when he departs from it. Normally, the head of the house would break the bread and distribute it, and they would eat it in silence. They're supposed to be reflecting on its meaning. But Jesus breaks the silence after he breaks the bread when he says, take, eat, this is my body. What? Like, you have to realize, just try to get into their sandals, like their laying down, that's how they ate back then, they're reclining at this table. This is like crazy hubris. Like, you're messing with the Passover meal. What right do you have to insert yourself into the meaning of this meal? Like, this is centuries of history. This is Almighty God who set this up, and you're just writing yourself into the script. Who do you think you are? Like, that is really shocking and surprising. Do, like, do you get a sense of how crazy this would have been? And then he takes the cup, which would have been the third cup, and says, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many. This is like my blood poured out for the many. What? <laughs> your blood of the, your blood of the covenant? What covenant are we talking about? What are you talking about? Because this meal, this meal is all about the miraculous deliverance that Moses led out of Egypt that led to the Mosaic covenant and the forming of the people of God under the law. Centuries and centuries of celebrating this meal as the central act of God's deliverance, which led to the formation of God's people. And Jesus breaks the script and inserts himself into the meal, essentially replacing the Exodus and the Passover with his body and blood and covenant. Like, that is shocking. And we need to feel that shock. What? And another thing. He says in verse 25, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. What cup was it that he declared to be symbolic of his blood of the covenant? If you were listening like 47 seconds ago, I mentioned it. It's the third. Then there was normally a fourth cup. So Jesus is going off script again. 
He's not going to drink the fourth cup. And he's not going to drink wine again until he drinks it new in the kingdom of God. But he is going to go on and drink another cup. Look down to 1436. This is outside the scope of our passage, but you should see this. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. What cup is that? He is about to drink the cup of God's wrath. His just punishment for sin. That is our sin. That's my sin. That's your sin. We deserve the judgment, the just and holy, righteous wrath of God against our sin. We deserve to drink that cup. But he is going to drink that cup. So he can't celebrate the new and better Passover until he suffers so that we can be passed over by the angel of death, the second death. Jesus died to accomplish a greater Passover, to accomplish a new and greater exodus. That is the meaning of this meal and the things that he is saying. So let's look at these, each one. First, a new exodus. So think about it. The Israelites were brought out of Egypt. Exodus. So they were no longer slaves under Pharaoh. But if you know the story, what happened to them in the wilderness? They're making golden calf. They're grumbling and complaining. They're like breaking the Sabbath, like left, right, and center and they all fall in the wilderness. They were delivered circumstantially, but they were not delivered spiritually. The law was written on tablets of stone, but their hearts were hard like that stone. They needed, we need a deeper deliverance. A new and better exodus. So. Luke 9.30, um, I think this passage will be on the screen here. When, when the transfiguration account is recorded in Luke, look at what it says there in verse 30. Behold, two men were talking with Jesus. They were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his, translated as departure, okay? Some translations may say his death which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So Moses and Elijah are speaking with Jesus, two primary figures who represent the law and the prophets, right, in the Old Testament. And they're speaking with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Jesus is going to fulfill all of what the Old Testament predicted, you know, law and prophets, all that he pointed to. So this conversation is a poignant picture of what's happening. So what are they talking about? His departure that he's about to accomplish. How do you, is he just talking about his death? Like he's about to accomplish his death? How do you accomplish a death? Well, guess what the word is? The Greek word under the, underneath that word departure. It's exodon. From which we get the word exodus. 
right? So he's talking about his exodus that he's about to accomplish. He's about to accomplish the greater exodus deliverance through his death. He is the liberator, the new and better Moses who's going to lead his people out of slavery to sin, the deeper problem, and into, we're like exiles in this world, wilderness, you know, we're not home yet, but then all the way to the promised land of the new heavens and the new earth. So the disciples didn't get it. They don't understand the suffering Messiah. Jesus is committing to liberating them at a deeper level than they know they even need. He knows about our chains beneath our chains. They just wanted a liberator from Roman oppression. He knew that they needed something deeper than that, set free from sin. So rather than doing signs and wonders and bringing judgment on the enemies of the Jews, the Romans, Jesus does signs and wonders for the people, healing, casting out demons, even for his enemies, And he, in a sense, took the plagues. He took the judgment on himself in our place to set us free. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Galatians 5.1, right? So God is doing a new thing. This meal is full of surprises. And Jesus is pointing here to a new exodus. And he's also pointing to a new covenant. Okay, so Russell read from Jeremiah 31. That is the only place in the Old Testament that talks about a new covenant to come, at least using that explicit language. So let's look at it again. Behold, the days are coming. And and look at the contrast between the old covenant, Mosaic covenant, and the new covenant that is coming. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. It wasn't God's unfaithfulness. It was their unfaithfulness. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, no, Yahweh. What what is that all about? for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. The point is, there were plenty of people who were Israelites by blood, by biological descent, that weren't believers. So you needed to teach people to know the Lord because they didn't know the Lord. But in the new covenant, everyone who comes into the new covenant comes in by the renewal, the miracle work of the Holy Spirit. And so when you're made new, you know God when you wake up as a Christian, when you're converted. When you are made alive together with Christ and saved by grace and the Spirit dwells within you, from the least to the greatest, you know the Lord. I will be their their God. They will be my people no longer Shall each one teach his neighbor, each his brother, saying, No, Yahweh, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh, for I will forgive their iniquity. Not provisionally. Blood of bulls and goats doesn't take away sin, but perfectly, fully, completely, full atonement. Can it be? And I will remember their sins no more. So new exodus, new covenant, which leads to the formation of a new people, a new family. So the Passover was the formation of the nation of Israel. 
their identity hung on the meaning of that meal. It was like a paradigm, like the central paradigm of deliverance for the people of Israel. And now Jesus departs from the script because God is doing a new thing. So remember when it was the head of the house that would gather his family and walk through the meaning of the Passover meal? Well, think about what's going on here. What is Jesus doing here? Normally, you would eat the Passover with your family. Verses 12 to 16, Jesus sends two of the disciples to prepare the meal. Verses 17 and 18, he comes with his disciples and they recline a table. Jesus is gathering his family, a new people, his disciples, gathered and formed by a new exodus and founded on a new covenant. And membership in this family doesn't come by lowercase b blood. It comes by trusting in the uppercase b blood that the Lamb of God is about to shed on the cross to take away our sin. Remember back to Mark 3? when, you know, Jesus' popularity is growing and he's doing all kinds of amazing works, but he's also saying some crazy thing and making crazy claims. And his family thinks he's a little bit like off his rocker. And they're like, maybe we should pull him back for a little while so he can just kind of settle down. And they're looking for him. When his mother and brothers were looking for him because of this, he says, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, his disciples, those who were following him, he says, here are my mother and my brothers. So he's creating a new people by a new exodus and a new covenant. And remember, if you, if you were with us last week or if you've been with us in the past in the Mark series, um, Mark has this tendency to use this literary technique called a Mark and Sandwich, like really technical term, um, where he puts... Um, similar things on either side and then the meat in the middle. And usually the focus is on the meat in the middle. Well, there was one last week. You can listen to that if you want. Um, but this week, we're not able to look at the second piece of bread this morning. But verses 17 to 20, Jesus predicts the betrayal of the disciple. Verses 27 to 31, you have the defection of the disciples. And what's in the middle? The Last Supper. So what? What's up with that market sandwich? Jesus's gracious self-sacrifice that he is predicting is in contrast to the infidelity, the betrayal, the cowardice among the disciples. I mean, Judas is in a category by himself, right? But they're all leaving him. Here's the point. Jesus doesn't become a ransom for the worthy, but for the unworthy. All the disciples that he's saying, this is the blood of my covenant, which is for you, and you're all going to scatter and leave me. This is Romans 5.8 on display. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So as James Edwards, one of our favorite Markin commentators that we keep quoting every week, says, the original Last Supper is attended by traitors and cowards. It is a table not of merit, but of grace. That's how Jesus forms his family, right? By grace, through faith in him and his shed blood for us on the cross, establishing new covenant, new exodus, new family. So Don Carson, like 
what binds us together? What brings us together? Don Carson, one of my seminary professors, um, wrote this. He said, what binds Christians together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they have been saved by Jesus Christ. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. New people, new family based on the new covenant accomplished by way of a new exodus. And that is what you and I are supposed to taste and see today. I mean, we're in Mark 14, so God intends for us to taste and see this truth and be strengthened by it, feed on this grace. But that's what we do every time we come to this table. We taste and see that God is good through the work of Christ. So point number two, grace you can taste. Listen, we must eat and drink the grace and truth of Jesus. Christianity is not just information. John 6.35, or 6.35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. It's actually even stronger than that in Greek. Shall never ever hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never ever thirst. So listen, you can know that there is food in the fridge. Information. But if you don't, go to the fridge and grab the food and stick it in your mouth and chew and swallow, it doesn't do you any good. Whoever comes to me shall never, ever hunger. So that's what we're after here. Not just knowing information like, oh, there, did you know there was four cups in the Passover meal? You know, like, like it's not, who cares? This is the information for the sake of like knowing, experiencing intimate communion and fellowship with God, tasting and seeing that he is good. Like how do you know that honey is sweet? Because somebody told you. It's probably what got you to stick some on a spoon in the first place, but because you tasted it. So do you think God is gracious and loving and forgiving and kind and compassionate and patient and merciful and wonderful? Well, oftentimes we need to get through our head to get to our heart, right? And this is sometimes like the longest distance in the universe. But that's why the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Delight yourself in the Lord. So even as we come to the table, it is both feeding on Christ and also like praying that we will be nourished and strengthened and satisfied in Christ. So Jonathan Edwards, I, I've quoted this before, it's been a while, but um, in a sermon called A Divine and Supernatural Light, he speaks of the difference here. Just so that we know what we're after, um, we don't want just mere information, but in this sermon he said, there's a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. There's a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. A man may have the former that knows not how honey tastes, but a man cannot have the latter 
unless he has an idea of the taste of honey in his mind. So there is a difference between believing that a person is beautiful and having a sense of his beauty. The former may be obtained by hearsay, but the latter only by seeing the countenance. There is a wide difference between mere speculative, rational judging anything to be excellent and having a sense of its sweetness and beauty. The former rests only in the head. Speculation only is concerned in it, but the heart is concerned in the latter. When the heart is sensible of the beauty and amiableness, agreeableness, like just the beautiful rightness of a thing, it necessarily feels pleasure in the apprehension. It is implied in a person's being heartily sensible of the loveliness of a thing, that the idea of it is sweet and pleasant to his soul, which is a far different thing from having a rational opinion that it is excellent. So this is grace and truth that we can taste. And actually God gives us not just words, but also a table to help us realize that we need to not just know things, but we need to feed on and be nourished by the grace of Jesus. God set it up this way. He wants us not to just know this is my blood of my covenant. No, do this in remembrance of me. Like, let's use more of your senses so that all of who you are is attuned to who I am and what I've done for you. Take, take, eat. Do this in remembrance of me. Feed on Christ today, brothers and sisters. That is the call here. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Find your souls nourished. And then finally, this text and this meal encourage us, help us to live in the present in light of the past and in light of the future. What do I mean by that? Well, all of us all the time live in the present, in light of the past and light of the future. Probably a lot more than you realize. And maybe through some of the unhealthy ways that we do it, we can see how frequently we do this. So do you ever beat yourself up over past sins and failures and mistakes? Okay, the rest of you are just not bold enough to put your arm up, but, or maybe you've got something figured out and you can help the rest of us. But have you ever just woke up in the morning, woken up in the morning and you get in the shower and you just start spinning and replaying the tape and you just, oh. And it's like, you know, go ahead and put the soap in a sock and just beat your back with it, you know? Like, let's just keep doing penance. Like, I'm such an idiot, I'm such an idiot. And Satan loves to wag his finger, the accuser of the brother, and like, you call yourself a Christian? So we can do that. We can relate in an unhealthy way. Like, obviously, if we are guilty and we haven't dealt with our sin, if we haven't been honest about it, then that conviction and guilt is a good thing. It should lead us to honesty with ourselves, honesty with God and whoever else we need to apologize to because we've got to deal with our sin. But what I'm talking about is we keep feeling the shame that Jesus paid for. We keep getting paralyzed and we keep just rehashing the guilt that Jesus has already taken care of. That's looking back in an unhealthy way, not in faith. We also look forward in faith. Probably all of us can track with this one. Anxiety, fear. Anybody like broken homeless by the time you get out of the shower in the morning? You know, like spinning out all the what ifs? 
like Chicken Little, just walked out of the shower. Here we go. I'm ready for the day. Sky's falling. That is looking forth, looking forward in unbelief, not looking forward in faith. I mean, certainly we need to think and plan and prepare and whatever, but like, you know what I'm talking about? Anxiety, fear. So God actually intends us to live in the present, in light of the past, and in light of the future, but with a totally different paradigm. Before I kind of just give an example of what that might look like, do you know that Leonardo da Vinci painted the famous Last Supper painting, um, and he used a nail and some string? I didn't know this till this morning. Thank you, Lord, for this illustration. Um, so there's lots of points of symbolism in his painting. Like, for instance, Judas's face is the one that's like kind of obscured in shadows. It's the one you can't see. Shadows, darkness, you know. Peter has a knife, you know, when he cuts off Malchus's ear. And anyway, there's other things you can look at it later. But he painted it in such a way, it's called one-point perspective, Everything is forcing your eyes to the center where Jesus is. Do you know what he did? He knocked a nail into the wall right by the head and put strings out so that he would consider every angle, every section of the portrait in its relation to the center so that everything would force your eyes to focus on the focal point of the painting, which is Jesus. The focal point is Jesus. All of the Old Testament, certainly the Passover, was pointing to Jesus. So I love this story Tim Keller tells of a time like 45 years ago or something. He was meeting with a bunch of students in R.C. Sproul's living room in, I think it was outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which we had membership class this morning and like several people from Pittsburgh. So we got some serious representation. Okay, there we go. I probably shouldn't have said that. Anyway, so... Um, R.C. Sproul was from Pittsburgh. So he is got a bunch of students in his living room, and he had Alec Motier, who is a well-known British Old Testament scholar, there. And Sproul asked Motier to share something about the connection between the Old Testament and the New. And this is something of what he said. Think about what an Israelite would say on the way to Canaan, having come out, come out of the Red Sea. Here's what an Israelite might have said. If you ask that Israelite, who are you? He would say, I was in a foreign land under the sentence of death in bondage, but I took shelter under the blood of the lamb and our mediator led us out and we crossed over. And now we are on our way to the promised land, but we're not there yet. But he's given us his law to make us a community and he's given us the tabernacle because you have to live by grace and forgiveness. And his presence is in our midst and he's going to stay with us until we get home. Come on. Jesus is the focal point of the story. Jesus is the focal point of your story and my story, our story. So rather than rehearsing tomorrow morning your failures and beating yourself up and being plagued by shame, there is blood that covers our sin and shame. So we live in the present in light of the past. And we are being shepherded all the way home where we will feast 
at the wedding feast of the Lamb. We will feast in the house of Zion. We're going to sing that song to close. Our future is incredibly bright. Maybe some of you need to hear that this morning. I need to hear that. Like, we suffer, we struggle, we've got trials and circumstances and situations and everything, and inside, outside, your future is incredibly bright. You can live in the present in light of the future. That's called hope. We have a living hope that death can't kill, that none of our circumstances can kill. We have riches that nothing can steal away from us, the riches of God's mercy and his grace. So listen, Jesus, ready? He did not drink that fourth cup. Instead, he took an oath. He said to them, truly I say to you, like those are serious, like promise oath words. I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He is taking an oath there. He will not break it. He's going to do everything necessary to bring his people all the way home until the wedding feast. So he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. That's a different way to live in the present in light of the future, both a million years from now and 10 minutes from now. When your will feels like a leaf in a a windstorm, you are held by the sovereign hand of your gracious Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior. So we live in the present by faith, looking at his promises. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you're with me. So we live between perfect love and unshakable promise. We live by faith in the present, looking back by faith on the grace of God in Christ. We live in the present, looking forward by faith, the promises of God that are ours in Christ. Remember the other passage that Russell read from Jeremiah 32? Listen again. He's going to gather his people from all the nations and bring them back, and they will dwell in safety. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God, and I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. Isn't that encouraging? Built, baked into the new covenant is you're going to fear him forever. You're not going to go AWOL. For their own good and the good of their children after them, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. Live in the present by faith, looking forward to God's faithfulness. He's not going to turn away from doing good to me. He's going to put the fear of me in, I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and soul. Hallelujah. What a savior. So that is the grace that we need. That's the grace that we feed on. That's the paradigm for how we can and how we should live as Christians, looking back in faith, looking forward in faith, and being strengthened by all of this manifold, rich grace that is ours in Christ. Amen.